You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. This episode of Self-Made Strategies is brought to you by CollegeCast. At CollegeCast, we empower student voices by helping college students create their own podcast series consisting of 10 episodes. Go to collegecastpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at collegecastpods. Welcome to episode 141 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On this episode, we sat down with Nardeep Kermi. You may recognize Nardeep when you see him if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're not, go over to our YouTube channel and check out this episode. It'll be there as well. Nardeep is an acclaimed writer, director, and actor. If you go to his IMDb page, which we'll post a link to in the show notes, you'll see that he's got many credits on shows and films where you may have seen him before. Nardeep's originally from the Philly area, growing up in the Philly suburbs, but he ended up at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. His work spotlights underrepresented communities, socially relevant narratives, and absurdist comedy pieces. He's currently developing a feature film called Land of Gold. You can check out the trailer to that film at the link in the show notes. Nardeep is also an accomplished actor. His recent credits include 911, SWAT, The Odd Couple, and recurring roles on Jane the Virgin and The Bold and the Beautiful. On this episode, we talk mainly about Nardeep's creative process and his journey making the film Land of Gold. Nardeep's here to share a lot of insights with you and a lot of really interesting tidbits about how you can expand upon your creativity, get out there, and make some really cool things. Make sure you listen all the way through to the end of the episode where Nardeep shares a link where you can go support his new film. Here are the self-made strategies of Nardeep Kermi. Nardeep, man, thanks for joining us. Super cool to have you on the show. Uh, you have so many credits to your name on IMDb, and you're currently working on a project called Land of Gold. Where where are you in the production phase with Land of Gold, by the way? Yeah, we're in it. We are in it. We are uh, four weeks away from principal photography from wow. our start date. We start Yeah, we start shooting September 28th in Oklahoma. And uh, yeah, I think that's four weeks away Damn, awesome. it's four awesome. weeks away so uh we are knee deep in pre-production just trying to get you know our eyes dotted and t's crossed as they say um <laughs> trying not to lose our minds collectively uh you know that photo of like you know like those before and after photos of presidents like the day they get inaugurated and the day they leave <laughs> yeah i feel like that's me right now and i'm in that weird gray area where it's like you're oh, somewhere shit. somewhere in that range somewhere in the middle there oh yeah i'm 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 definitely in that range <laughs> so how how long do you think production once you begin principal photography what's yeah. your budgeted time how how long do you think yeah. you'll go so, so bit, a principal photography starts on September 28th. We've got two weeks before that for prep. So prep basically involves uh, like rehearsals, costume fittings. Uh, we've got a week of tech scouting. So basically our location scout right now is going, taking photos and pulling stuff. And we're going to approve things as like virtually. And then when we get there, my DP, my production designer, you know, the rest of the crew that the, the sort of people who need to see the stuff, we're going to go and approve the locations and see how the light is and, you know, just see like what kinds of things we'd be walking into. Uh, and like I said, rehearsals, all the other stuff, you know, rescheduling if need be, uh, you know, doing local casting stuff uh, as we as we sort of need it. And then uh, we've got five weeks of production. 
it's a 25 day shoot. And, uh, so we're, you know, we're going to be shooting for a month. It's a marathon. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, we'll be done in the beginning of November and then post-production starts pretty much the next week. Uh, cause we've got some deadlines. Uh, as you know, you know, we've got a, uh, a premiere guaranteed, uh, with the Tribeca film festival next year. So, awesome. you know, yeah, we gotta so get, cool. we gotta, we're basically, you know, hauling ass as they say. Awesome. Now is yeah. the whole thing shooting in Oklahoma or are you actually, because we'll, we'll get to the story in a minute, which first yeah. of all, I love the background. We talked about this before when we did our sort of pre-interview, um, love the background, love where it's coming from, love the communities that it represents. So really interested for everybody listening to hear about that. I, I was so blown away when you were telling me about this really interesting period in American history, but it's, it's the main concept is a father to be right. Who's yeah. a, a truck driver doing a cross country trip. And he ends up with someone on board that was unexpected, right? And why don't yeah. you tell us the the full synopsis? Yeah. All right. So Land of Gold is about a uh, Punjabi American truck driver. Um, so for those of you who don't know who Punjabi Americans are, they're Indian Americans. Uh, they, you know, from the northwest of India. Uh, that's where they immigrated from. But he's a Punjabi American truck driver who is expecting his first child. And as many dads-to-be is terrified. Uh, but a lot of his fears stem from his first generation experience and a lot of the traumas that his family dealt with as they, you know, as immigrants in America. But he's trying to get by. He's terrified. And uh, his way of coping is taking a long haul trucking drive two weeks before his wife is due to give birth, which, as you can imagine, doesn't go well uh, <laughs> with his wife. So he basically leaves his wife in the lurch and he takes this drive from Bakersfield to Boston. And on the way, he discovers a, a 10-year-old stowed away on his trailer uh, named Elena, and she's trying to get to Boston to get to her uncle Diego. And as the story progresses, we found out, find out why, uh, and we find out that she's an undocumented immigrant, and uh, this may be her last-ditch effort to have any family in America, or she might be alone. So the story is basically this surrogate father-daughter story where our main character, Karen, is trying to learn how to be a dad in the moment and and kind of move past those traumas to be the man that he wants to be. And our, our lead, Elena, who is this 10-year-old who's basically got the weight of the world on her shoulders, and she's alone and is just trying to find some sort of family and some sort of stability in an America that, for all intents and purposes, doesn't want her. Amazing. Very deep. But it starts from this period in history where Punjabi Americans and Mexican Americans kind of came together. So I, I thought it was fascinating. Please share with our audience what that sort of core time period was and, and what was going yeah. on during that time. Yeah. So this is sort of like a piece of American history that's kind of untold as well. Um, and, and I've got some other projects related to it that I want to do. But so Land of Gold is my homage to this time period. So, uh, you know, when people think of at least South Asian immigration into America, we tend to think of the 60s and 70s. I was guilty of that, too. You know, oh, yeah, upper middle class, you know, doctors and lawyers, professors, engineers, and then like very, uh, you know, enterprising, you know, like, you know, and gas stations, the taxi drivers, that of kind course. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we think that, you know, South Asians are this modern immigrant group. Turns out that's not true. Uh, the, the first South Asians were Punjabi. Uh, 
who came over to America. So the first South Asians to come to America were Punjabi, uh, Punjabi immigrants in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And they came to the West Coast and worked in the logging and the farming industries on the West Coast. And what was happening around the time in America, uh, you know, immigration bans are a, a popular thing that the American government likes to do. Right. So at this time period, it was focused against Asian Americans, specifically Chinese people, um, because the government was afraid of this influx of, of Chinese uh, immigrants who were industrious and who were making money. So they basically instituted the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, to, 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 it was the Asian Exclusion Act. It started with the Chinese and then kind of grew to all kind of people from Asia to prevent them from immigrating. They put quotas and caps on people who could come from these countries and they refused them citizenship and they refused them the ability to own land, which as many of us know, especially in the world that we're in, right? Land is kind of a, it's a big deal. That's legacy. That's, that's inherited wealth. Um, so Indians got got caught in this because they're from Asia. And uh, during this Asian Exclusion Act, there was a quota on all of these Indian immigrants. So these Punjabi farmers were kind of stuck in America over this kind of like seven to 10 year time frame, and they couldn't bring anyone over and they were just on these farms. At the same time, Mexican immigration started happening. Uh, a lot to do with uh, a lot of religious persecution in Mexico and, and people were fleeing, um, um, you know, this persecution up to the to California. And what happened was what's really interesting is these Punjabi farmers and these Mexican migrants started bonding and marrying and forming their own communities. And it's interesting because like the lifestyle is very similar. Right. You know, we all brown, which, you know, we all that same shade <laughs> of brown. We all eat spicy food. We, you know, if it, whether it's a roti or a tortilla, we, we love chilies, like, like the food, the lifestyle, the music, um, that sort of family unit was very similar. So you had this this Mexican Indian Mexican Punjabi community that formed over this kind this time frame that uh, still exists in the American Southwest in pockets uh, and and through California. So so when I learned about that, you know, when we're talking about America and what is an American story, I was like, you can't not speak about this. Like, how does no right. one know about this? Yeah. South Asians don't know about it. Lots of Mexicans don't know about it. So how the hell would the rest of America know it? And um, Land of Gold is kind of like my homage to that community and that kind of collaboration and that support that those two communities were giving each other that, you know, sadly seems to have been forgotten in modern context as, you know, politics have been, you know, very divisive and partisan and, and we start we stop kind of seeing each other as people and we right. start seeing each other as groups. And, um, you know, back then there were no groups. They're just like, Hey, let's, let's be people together. And again, you know, I'm kind of rambling here, but land of gold is that homage to that. And about these two communities bonding together, uh, for family and, and Amazing. to survive. Amazing. And again, I, I mean, I truthfully did not know about this period in American history either, but I found it so interesting that in sort of this, not a crisis, but finding yourself, against the same odds kind of unified these two groups that yes had some cultural similarities in terms of, of food and and some other things but still super cool that 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 was a period that kind of you know from this pressure created some diamonds and i think it is really yeah. really interesting interesting concept now looking at i personally and we we talked about this yeah. i personally think that entrepreneurship, business, you know, those kinds of things and being a creative are 
essentially intertwined. I, I think it's yeah. similar to Punjabis and Mexicans, right? They, they come yeah. from the same culture. They oh, just yeah. kind of end up in two, two slightly different places. So yeah. just kind of, I mean, your credits are amazing, by the way. I think you've done, you have a, an awesome uh, IMDB and people should definitely check out your stuff and we'll post a link to your page, to your bio page uh, for everyone to check out. And please go check out all the uh, Nardeep's Real and look at Land of Gold. And congrats on Tribeca. I want to get into that as well, which is such a cool thing. But but take us to the beginning, because I'm always really interested at sort of the inception point of this Mm -hmm. idea becoming like a bee in your bonnet that you (laughs) you just kind of like, you have to release it, right? It's it's somehow like an itch that you must scratch. So what was that moment for you? Yeah. So, you know, it was the 2016 election. I think that, you know, like a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, it, 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 it kind of lit the fire under their, their ass and it lit the fire under my ass too. I was really shocked and, and disappointed in what I was seeing out of people. And uh, I made a short film around then too, that was again, focused on Punjabi Americans, which you can see on, on YouTube, it's called Pug, a P-A-G-G. And uh, it was, you know, it was a very personal story and it wound up being the most successful thing I've ever made. Did the International Film Festival circuit, won a bunch of awards, which is great, you know. Um, but then the question was, what's next? And I've been in this position where, you know, I had made another short film around the same time, which again was, the question was, what's next? These are great. and. I had been circling around trying to figure out how can I expand representation of my community beyond the sort of like narratives that we have always lived in, which is the, our parents' immigration story or the arranged marriage story or the coming out story. And I love them. They're necessary. We should keep seeing them. But there's a whole wide swath of unexplored territory there. And so as I was like juggling with that, watching the news, you started seeing all these stories of these kids being separated at the border. And it was infuriating and it was heartbreaking. And like, you know, like the, the hair on my arm goes up anytime I think of some of these images. And I started seeing like, as, as like the few kids who were lucky enough to be reunited were like going back to their parents, they were terrified of, they had abandoned, like severe abandonment issues. Of course. And it was just this realization of like, wow, this country that believes in freedom and like helping the poor masses and everything just created a lost generation with these kids who will have to deal with the trauma of this the rest of their lives because they're too young to understand what's happening, right? And 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 forget about the politics of it. That's just devastating. And I and 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 you know, as the news cycle happens, like these things get forgotten. You know, like like we're facing in the world right now, like there's a refugee crisis in Afghanistan and, you know, global warming is the ever, ever present, you know, issue that's like, you know, whatever you may believe, like these are real things. So this problem still exists, even with a new administration, it's still existing and it's like it's made marginally better. But like these kids are still, you know, they're still screwed. So that that was sticking in my head. And I was like, as a filmmaker, as a brown filmmaker, I feel like I have the privilege and the responsibility to use that privilege in something. Yes, I have to make something entertaining, but if we can like expose something, let's do it. So I was toying around with these ideas of like, okay, how can I explore this in a human way? Because documentaries do it much better than I could in a narrative of like exploring the actual issue. But like, I'm really interested in the trauma of a kid who's been separated, of, of a kid who has to deal with this. So I had this the idea of like, okay, a kid on the run, what's going to happen there? 
And then I saw an article in the LA Times about Punjabi truckers. And then I went into an old notebook that I had years ago where I had done a bunch of research on Punjabi truckers. And I called family members and Punjabi truckers were all over the place. And I was driving down the highway and suddenly all these trucks had like six symbols, you know, the condependent and like all this stuff and Kulsa. And I'm like, holy shit, this is prevalent. Wow. It's not just in India that the Punjabis run the trucking industry. It's in America now in Canada. And, and it just kind of coalesced where I was like, these two disparate stories seem so separate, but they're not because I can formulate this about a first generation person dealing with the traumas of his past. And it's also this, this Mexican American who's dealing with the traumas of her family. Cause like, She's just dealing with the fallout of her family's decisions and and what comes with that. So, yeah, it was around 2017 that the story kind of came about. It was very different. It was a very different format. Uh, it took place in like Boyle Heights and then in L.A. And, and then I, I, I was just like, I, I don't have the right vocabulary and knowledge. And it's not like my story to tell here because I, I don't live in that neighborhood. Um, and then, the, then, then the Punjabi trucking kind of like really took hold and, and then the story kind of developed as it is. So yeah, it's been a process since around 2017, just kind of like thinking about it. Right. And then the winter of 2019, I met my producers and they were like, we need a first draft and I hadn't written anything. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and I basically was like, give me like four weeks. So I took wow. four weeks and I vomited this draft out, hit the end, sent. And uh, that was like in January 2020, right before the pandemic, you know, three months before the pandemic hit. And then, you know, one of the few blessings, and I really, you know, say that cautiously of the pandemic for me was having time to focus on the script. And I just kept workshopping it. I talked to undocumented kids, um, talked to my family members, truckers, things like that to kind of put the details in there. And, and then, yeah, and then the script was done. And um, awesome. We kept wow. working on it. We were talking about financing, you know, the entrepreneurial thing, like how are we going to make this going to like studios? They may not want something like this because it may not be commercial enough for them. And it's, you know, Brown story. Um, okay. So we're going to do indie financing. And then on a lark, we applied to the AT&T Untold Stories program and then we won it. And here we are making the movie wow. in five Amazing. weeks. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So uh, did that kind of accelerate winning Tribeca, winning that Untold Stories um uh, opportunity did that sort of put you know light everything ablaze and basically okay now we need to move everything up and figure it out and produce oh yeah oh yeah i feel like i was like before we were just like i mean this is a really nerdy comic book reference but uh uh oh what the we're barry allen before and then we won that thing and then we suddenly <laughs> became the flash um you know before at&t Endle story so for that program we had to apply with a a budget a pitch deck and our the script at that time and then as we advanced in the competition they wanted updated materials updated attachments but it's like how can you it's like a chicken and egg problem right like filmmaking and i think very much like entrepreneurship it's very much a chicken and egg problem because it's like you need the money to do the thing but you can't do the thing without the money so like where do you take that sacrifice and with filmmaking it's very much that because it's exactly. like hard to build the team when you don't have the resources or a time or a date, you're just kind of like, you know, we're going to do this thing once we get it together. So, yeah, I mean, we basically were going on the route of like, okay, just keep submitting this to screenplay competitions, keep workshopping the script at, you know, as, as we're going, we, we weren't like being lazy about it, but our plan was definitely different in terms of how <laughs> we were going to tackle financing. And then once we won it and like, we won it in like the most public way possible, like in front of millions of people, 
you know, with a live pitch and Q and A and like, you can see my face winning a million dollars to like, you know, make this movie. Amazing. We started pre-production that afternoon. Um, we started taking calls and we started putting more team members together and it's just basically been like zero to 60, right, right from that moment. Amazing. Because like, you know, again, the beauty of this program is, you know, we got a million dollars to make this movie, which is both great and also comes with its challenges. Sure. But we have like nine months, 10 months to get this feature film done till we have to premiere in, 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 in whenever Tribeca is next year. Right. And, you know, uh, I've spent longer on short films. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's to, to, to like, think about like, Oh, we got this much for pre-production production and then post and like everything is truncated. I mean, maybe it's the best way to make your first film because you can't really think about it. You kind of just have to go on instinct and just make the decisions. And like, you know, there's always fires to put out again, like you start a business and you know, you think something's going to happen. Then this person pulls out and you're like, ah, oh, shit. Okay. Now right. what do we do? We got to rethink things. It's the same thing with filmmaking. Where it's like, oh, we have this thing. Oh, this pulled out. Okay, now we got to rejigger this thing so we can, you know, it's like all of these, like the machinations of the producing aspect of it is is fun. But uh, yeah, it's, as you can probably tell from my anxiety, it's zero to 60. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you sound excited and how could you not be, right? I mean, such a cool experience, but I I couldn't agree with you more that I think this is like, entrepreneurs are truly creative if you're a true entrepreneur, right? We're not talking about the business owner who calls themselves an entrepreneur. We're talking about a a legit entrepreneur, right? Someone who believes in what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. No, no judgment on anyone and, and small business owners. I I do firmly believe are the backbone of this country, but, but an entrepreneurial person doesn't necessarily even have to own a business, right? I mean, that definition is very abstract to begin with. And I think you're right. It's, it's someone who, has that same thing where it's like, all right, I want to do this and I need this money to make it happen. So I'm going to push this a little bit and then I'm going to get a little bit of money and then I'm going to, you know, and it's just back and forth, back and forth, kind of feathering the throttle and figuring it out as you go. I mean, that's really the process, but that's awesome that you, you mentioned that, that you've had short films that have taken longer than the process that you have to produce this. You know? Yeah. It's, 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 it's insane. I like, it's like, yeah, to, to, I, that came into perspective with me a couple weeks ago, where I looked at some of my old production like diaries, and I was like, "Oh shit, I spent a year and a half on this nine-minute movie. I'm now making a ninety-minute wow. movie in wow. half the time." <laughs> wow! But you have a and, bigger crew, right? And you have more. Oh people yeah, involved. I mean, like, yeah. the, and the only way that's possible is because I have this incredible right. team on board, and like, when I say incredible, I mean rock stars. Like left and right. I mean, I, I've never felt so supported in making something. And I think it's like, I, I don't know how I would be able to do this without so cool. them. Like fundamentally, so cool. you know. So cool. So you you head to Oklahoma. You're going to shoot from there. Are you going to shoot the whole thing there locally, or right. are is there going to be any type of like how are you shooting the cross country trip? Just yeah. different locations within. Right. So, so it's, so the, the, the movie is a road trip from Bakersfield, California to Boston. So basically what we're doing is we're shooting the majority of the movie, like 90% of it, 95% of it in Oklahoma. And the reason for that is a, they've got a really great tax rebate. So our million dollars can go further. Right. It's similar to like what Georgia has been doing right. and why Atlanta has right. been popping off and Oklahoma like is already popping off. Scorsese shooting his movie right there. And like a bunch of stuff's coming in. Right. Awesome. But the beautiful part of Oklahoma is it's got, 
everything you kind of need for a road trip. It's got the Western desert in the panhandle. It's got all the plains and it's got like this East coast woodsy vibe. So we can fake a lot of the road trip. And it's also, it's like kind of like the crossroads of America. Like every trucking route kind of goes there. So like every rest stop, is, you know, route 66 is there. Right, if you want character, right. then you got the normal stuff. So we really can fake the whole film in wow. the one state. And then we're going to, you know, there's a pivotal moment in Boston by a lighthouse and the water can't fake that. So we're going to go to Boston <laughs> for like a day basically and film in this beautiful lighthouse. Cool. Uh, so we can get the water and like the edge of the United States on that side. Um, and then the idea is that once we have everything, we're going to start cutting the film and, uh, you know, we're going to get some B roll while we're shooting in Oklahoma, obviously, but my cinematographer and I, you know, we'll, we'll go shoot plates in Bakersfield, California while we're here and go to the Arizona border. And then we're going to start cutting that stuff in and basically do pickups where we need them to sell stuff. So we know we're shooting all the interiors in Oklahoma, but we know like Bakersfield, like, you know, there's a good check chunk of the, of the script that takes place in Bakersfield. We can shoot the interior of the house in Oklahoma, and then we can go shoot just an exterior out in actual Bakersfield, California. Right. And, um, so that's the plan, right? You know, when we get back from principal photography, the first thing we'll do is go shoot those plates in California and <laughs> Arizona, awesome. send them off to the editor. And then if there's anything else that we need to get, you know, the rust belt or something like that. I, I grew up in, in right outside Philly in Pennsylvania. So like for right. me, it's important to get that right vibe for like the rust belt and just like see like, you know, like when you drive on the highway and, and you just see all these like factories and like broken down buildings in the distance and you're like, wow, this is what an era in America that we never yeah, saw. Right. Uh, so I want to make sure like that character and flavors in the film. So a lot of that kind of interstitial stuff is going to be um, kind of filmed after the fact on a need basis, what we can use in the edit. So we don't, you know, overshoot and kind of waste time. Amazing. So, all right, going back to your creative process. Yeah. You wrote the script, obviously, you know, as everyone who I'm starting to dabble in screenwriting, I'm a lawyer by oh, cool. trade, but, um, yeah. uh, we actually met because we have a mutual connection. That's your AP. I think Jesse, yeah. Jesse Motz is your yeah. AP and She's fantastic. Uh, yeah, Jesse and I are part of a, a group of producers that meets remotely every Thursday. And that's kind of how we met. Um, yeah. and so I I've been dabbling and trying to uh, write what, what is mostly drivel at this point, but, um, <laughs> but, but I'm trying to, trying to work out the muscles, right? It's like when you go to the gym, like yeah. you don't, you don't walk over to the bench press and start bench pressing 250 pounds. You gotta, yeah. like, that's you why gotta, I don't go to the yeah, gym. I get that, upset because yeah, I go exactly, there and I'm like, right. I should be able to do right, this. Right. And I can't. And, and, and I'm like, I'm going to go get a cheeseburger. But right. Exactly. But writing is, is that thing, right? Where, where yeah. it's like, it's just the blank page and it's you and yeah. you really don't have that many barriers to yeah. to to at least putting something out but to yeah. get good and to get to your your level or to the level of other writers who are who are good at the craft is really hard really really hard it's one of the hardest things so yeah. so when you're writing and when you're rewriting are you visualizing the whole thing literally mm -hmm. like are you seeing a movie in your mind walk us yeah. through what the experience yeah. is like you yeah. at, at your MacBook or you at your at your typewriter, if you're more right. old school, whatever it is, <laughs> what, what's your process and what's like the, the sensations that you feel? Yeah. Well, first up, the first thing I'll, I'll say is, you know, it, I always tell people this writing is definitely an art, but it's more a muscle and it doesn't matter how talented you are. You have to work the muscle and you just got to keep writing. And that may mean that the first thing you write is trash. Most likely it is. The right. first draft of Land of Gold was trash. 
Uh, and then it's the rewriting and that muscle and all that. Um, my creative process, I'm a little bit of a serial killer. Uh, so uh, basically what I like to do is if I have an idea or like kind of something that's like kind of percolating, I love writing with pen and paper. So I love a good notebook. And what I'll do is like, instead of like sitting down and being like, here's the blank page, write. I think that is unbelievably daunting and I hate it. So what I'll just do is I'll scribble notes in a notebook and I will keep scribbling, whether that's an image, uh, a, like a full scene, maybe some dialogue, some random like, oh, what if he wore this jacket? You know, just like whatever I can think of that's creative, like and keep filling this notebook up and keep filling it until I feel like, oh, wait a minute, well, maybe I'm just going to write the script now. And then I will write the script by hand uh, in the notebook. Wow. I'll just start writing like interior, whatever, you know, John walks down the street, he's breathing heavily, you know, whatever. And I will write the script by hand until I'm like, get until I'm like, why the hell am I doing this? I already know what I want to write. And then I'll go into the computer. So I'll, I probably have written like either like between 50% to a full draft on paper. And then I'll go into the computer and then just start writing from scratch. I won't even look at my notebook. Because the idea is that, it, you know, it's kind of like acting, like when you run lines, you got to learn stuff. Um, it's that repetition. And like, there's a power to putting it down on paper. So with all of those like kind of nuggets that are in the notebook, and then the, you know, very kind of like rudimentary version of the script, I just go by memory, and I just start writing. And I tend to be a vomit writer. So I'll take whatever that is, like, a week, two weeks, three weeks to just kind of get it all out and then push the end. And then that's it. Send it. And then once that's done, it's all about the rewrite process. Mm -hmm. And you realize, oh, this sucks. Let's get, you know, you got to get feedback. So feedback is a big part of my process, getting it out to trusted people who know how to give the right notes, who know how to, because I think that's a big thing with writing, right? You could give it to someone and they may keep telling you what they would want done with it. But the reality is like, you need to have collaborators who can help you pinpoint what it is you want to do in the script and help you accentuate that or tell you when it's not being, not working. So that kind of first feedback session is really like, what is working? What is not working? What are you receiving? And I don't get defensive. I just kind of sit there and listen and I take it and it sucks. Yeah. Um, but then I hear like, oh, this element's working. Oh, this character is passive. Clearly no one's getting what I'm trying to, what I'm intending here. And then I go back to that notebook and I start looking at those original nuggets that I had. And then I'll start writing the script again from scratch. Hey everyone, Tony Lopes here, host of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and returning to our show week after week. As always, you can catch our shows every Thursday, wherever you enjoy your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. Please don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you enjoy our podcast. Follow our show on Instagram at Selfmade Strategies. Visit our website to check out the show notes and more information about the show. And share an episode with a friend that you think might enjoy it. Thanks again. Back to the show. Wow. From scratch. Yeah. And you From go back scratch. to pen and paper as well. Yeah, because wow. I'm done with the computer. Like there's nothing to do there anymore. Like I, because what I find is when it's, when I have this document on a screen in front of me, all I want to do is revise and I'll, and, and just keep rewriting the same thing. But if I have to write from scratch, basically the good stuff will stick, I've noticed. And then the, there's new stuff that will come to kind of make those things work. Uh, so then once I've done that, I'll go back to the computer. And then, you know, once I feel comfortable with what I've got, then we kind of start the iterating process. And then it's like not giving it to the same person. It's giving to a different person to get different notes. Because the other person is just going to keep building off of what they already the know. The same notes, right. Yeah. Right. So I want to get a blind perspective. So that's kind of what it is. It's like it, it's, it's really just an, a very iterative 
kind of mind numbing process where you're basically, you just keep writing like, like that notebook winds up becoming my Bible in the sense that that's, those are the nuggets. And when I work with other writers too, like co-writing or helping with writing, I always tell them before we start, write a Google doc and put all of your shit there. Like the reason why you want to write this, those, those nuggets, because that's the stuff we all, always go back to. Um, and, and then, so, so that notebook guides are becoming the guiding light through the course of the thing. And I'll keep adding to it, uh, as I'm kind of rewriting stuff and getting notes and realizing like, oh, right. I don't need all of this plot. I just kind of need to focus on this one small moment with this character and then let that drive the story. And then it just kind of tumbles downhill and, and, you know, and, and, and for those of you who are writers and, and, and you too, like, just know, like, I'm still rewriting the script. I'm like four weeks, five weeks out of production and I'm going to be spending my Saturday incorporating notes wow. and changing some things. Wow. So it's, I think the other thing to realize is it's never going to be done. It's well, just got to be your shooting script, even. Yeah, your shooting script yeah. even will get modified sometimes by yeah. the director, by other people, or even by yourself when you're mm -hmm. you're seeing something then come to life and yeah. this just isn't working or it isn't coming to life the way you want it to. So you start over, right? It, well, exactly. In, yeah. in, a, in a micro sense, you start. Yeah, in, in the micro. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, the idea is that like those those handwritten drafts then moving into the computer, that's the macro stuff. Is the story working? Is it not? Once it starts working and it's kind of like, oh, the structure is here. I'm big about structure. Like once that structure is there, then you can really go in in the scenes and like refine dialogue. And, you know, dialogue is not my strong suit as a writer. It is structure. So I'm all about the big picture and then going into the micro. And um, the way I like to be, and, and, you know, it might be a little bit different because my I always write when I'm intending to direct it. So, you know, I know that the actors are going to bring their personalities to the parts. And like, and Landa Gold in particular, a 10-year-old is the second lead of the film. Right. So there's no way I can write 10-year-old dialogue perfect. So I know like this is really going to be a blueprint in many situations that we're going to improvise with so that it's really in her voice. And then I just have to be good enough because I'm also acting in it. I got to be good enough and know my shit so that I can perform opposite that. And, and, right. and, you know, it's like curb your enthusiasm, curb your enthusiasm. They kind of write situations and they have people improvise. They're like, okay, you have to hit this beat, this beat, and then finish like this. So it works. And then the actors just improvise within that. So it's kind of like, I, I, I realize I kind of write scenes like that and try not to get too bogged down on dialogue and if i happen to write some good dialogue then the actors are like great we don't need to improvise but yeah it's again it's a i'm rambling but it's a very iterative process and a little bit serial killer three um <laughs> when you see these notebooks of all these like <laughs> things and like i'll draw as well like i'll draw storyboards you were, you're asking like do i see the film um i tend to make playlists for my scripts when i'm writing nice. and they're constantly being updated nice and uh i had a, a professor say this was like imagine there's just a white like a wall in front of you and just describe what you're seeing on screen and that's and that is super helpful especially when i'm stuck because it's like oh i really know what i want to do here but i don't know how to write it then you just have to use your imagination and you just kind of look and you're like oh right he just he steps over it hesitates looks down the you know the rain falling on his face you know it, it just kind of like that's kind of what the idea is. Like once you have it down on paper the first time, then you can really start imagining it. Amazing. And then the rewriting happens and you're just, you're basically just like in your head, the movie's playing and you're just like, okay, this is what's happening. Yeah. That's incredible. It. Incredible. Yeah. A lot of right brain, left brain switching back and forth. It sounds like too, which oh, is, yeah. which is oh, a really yeah. interesting part of the process. I, I awesome. find what you said fascinating completely. And thank you for sharing that with us. Um, 
I also, because I'm I'm coming from a place that is not at all creative, being a lawyer, uh, l- learning. Hey, I, I wouldn't say that. I think sometimes <laughs> lawyers can be really. Well, creative. yeah, that's <laughs> true. I do I do have to come up with creative solutions for for client problems, and and yeah. working in the entertainment space in particular has to be that way. Yeah. And um, and I have found that obviously all of your experiences, as you pointed out when you talked about going back to the. Uh, Punjabi truck driver notes that you had made several years prior. That's one of the things it's like that Eureka moment where your brain is just like lights up and it's like, Oh, wait a minute. I wrote about this. Maybe I can put these two together. Right. Those things never delete anything. That's what I tell people. Never delete it. Don't maybe cross out. Like I write in pen specifically, like I'll write in pencil sometimes, but I write in pen and this, this seems like very rudimentary, but I write in pen so I can't erase. And I and that's another reason why I write notebooks because then I have stacks of stuff. When I lived in New York, I would ride the subway like three times a day, and I had an exercise where I would have a notebook with me and listen to my music, and I would pick an interesting person on the subway. I would describe them, and I would write where they were coming from and where they were going. Wow. And suddenly, like this seventy-year-old person was a spy who had just you know like murdered someone and was now going to a cocktail dinner with some CEO or like this like single mother, you know, like, you know, I just like, it's like notebooks filled of stuff and like never getting rid of it because you never know when you're writing something. And then that thing from years ago can literally be like the thing that clicks with you and makes the whole thing work. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend just keeping all this stuff and never deleting it. And yeah. Yeah. And you talked about your production journals, which, which, um, I, I find to be a really useful tool. And I've heard that from others as well. Do you, are you really solid journaling? Do you journal even personally in your own personal life? When did that habit sort of develop for you? Yeah. Uh, so, so I wish I was more consistent with it. Honestly, um, I'm not as consistent as I should be. So, you know, I've, I've dealt with depression since I was 16 and, uh, journaling was a big part of like battling that, especially when I was younger. And I find that like, journaling is a really good way to kind of tell your to show yourself when you're lying if that makes sense yeah like you can sure. you journal and then you can look at it and you can see where you're not being honest with yourself and um you know so i've used it as a personal thing for a long time and uh with the filmmaking stuff it's great because then it's like i i can i can be honest with myself did i put the work in did I not, did I miss something? Is it okay that I missed something because it wasn't necessarily something I could, you know, account for. Um, and then it's also just like fun to be able to go back and see like, oh, right, this was such a big deal for me that day. And in the reality, it's not a, you know, it was nothing because the thing still got done. Um, but I do like journaling because it, it really does help keep things into perspective. And I think, you know, filmmaking is very stressful, especially when it's something that's very personal even if it's not, I mean, even if it's just like, you know, every, any good filmmaker will make whatever they're doing personal. Right. Um, so like it's, it's, it's easy to get sensitive and it's easy to kind of like take things hard. So I think the journaling aspect of it and just like writing stuff down before like blowing your top off is a really good way to just kind of like get it down. And again, the power of putting things on paper, Yeah. put it on sure. paper sure. and then read it. Yeah. Awesome. And then see if, and see if it's honest. And then if not, you can kind of go from there. And then you can also like figure out a better way to confront things. So, 
Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, but, no, it uh, does. It does. And it's very yeah. helpful. So in the middle of an argument, if you walk away and say, I got to go journal real quick, we know, we know what's happening. You're going to write oh, down, yeah. this guy was an oh, asshole yeah. to me. And you know, he yeah, really exactly, screwed yeah. me over, pissed me off on set. Yeah. You know, it's funny <laughs> actors on set. Cause I have this, like, it's not like resting B face and I hate that term, but it's just more like, <laughs> like an inscrutable, like, huh? But it's just me thinking of what to say. And I have to prompt actors and I have to prompt crew members. Like, if you see me do that, it's not that I don't like what you're doing. It's more I'm trying to think of the most concise and simple way to tell you what I would like adjusted right. or how to say something. And <laughs> I was on a set once where like an actor came up to me and was like, do you hate what I'm doing? And I'm like, why? She's like, every take, you just look at the monitor and you're just like disgusted. I'm like, oh, no, I actually really love what you're doing. I'm just trying to think of what to tell you and tell the DP. And like, they're like, oh, you should work on that. Like, <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could, bro. I wish I could. That's an inherent, that, that's an inherent, that's a, a deep Nardeep moment. That's, yes, that is a Nardeep moment. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's so cool. So, all right, starting your film career, you, you yeah. were based in, you came from Philly, but you ended up in New York, obviously. Yeah. You were from the Philly area, ended up in New York. You went to Tisch. And yeah. then you had a lot of you you went through a lot of really cool experiences, even ending up in the uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. How was that experience and how has that helped you formulate yeah. your acting and your your writing directing career? Yeah. So uh, while I was uh, studying uh, at film school, I you know was was acting as well. And I decided to take classes and, and do some UCB improv stuff. And it was super helpful because I think it just. I think holistically as a writer and as, as a performer, it just makes you less precious because everything is so finite and you, and it's really hard to recreate stuff. So that, that improv experience was super helpful. A kind of loosened me up, you know, I can, I, you know, I tend to, to intellectualize things a little too much because that's my safety. Right. Um, but improv, sometimes you just have to, you have to go on instinct because you have to do the thing. You're there on stage with your person. You have to be present and always listening and everything. So it was super helpful for that in terms of like accessing vulnerability. But it's interesting too, like improv in terms of a writing skill, you would think like um, improv doesn't really make sense as a writer, but it totally does because good improv scenes have a beginning, a middle and an end. And the actors have to know, like pick up very quickly what the other person's doing with this basic setup, create the action and rise it. And then figure out a way to kind of make it end because otherwise the thing's going to go on forever. Right. So it was a really cool way in a very, very low stakes atmosphere to just like write in the moment. Um, so I found it maybe even more so than an actor, find it really helpful as a writer uh, because then I can suddenly be like, oh, why am I? Why am I writing this? How would an actor perform this? Because in UCB or like improv in general, the actor's got to justify everything, right? And the actor has to justify everything on scripted stuff. So if a writer can write something that the actor can justify very easily, it's a better script. It's easier to perform, I right. think. Um, so yeah, I found that very, very helpful and and just fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like in a very right. basic yeah, way, it's it's just a, was such like a cool experience. Super fun. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so as a performer, it helped me out, but as a writer, it, it really, really did did help in a surprising way. Awesome. You talked a little bit. I want to go back to one of the things that you talked about, which was your co-writing process that we didn't really get into. And this mm -hmm. is this is the thing that I'm super curious about because you yeah. can you can find books on story structure. You know, save the cats, yeah. feel all those. There are just umpteen amounts of books on storytelling and different forms of techniques. You can find all of that. 
But yeah. I don't think, at least as far as I know, that there's a book out there about how to get along in the co-creation process, right? In, yeah. in co-writing or co-creating. So for you, how how does that work? Or, or you know, how do you contribute to that? And to what degree do you take over? Are you more of a passive co-writer? Or is it kind of, yeah. what, what's the process? Yeah, so it's interesting. So <laughs> co-writing is hard. Man. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, like you said, writing is so personal. It's just you, it's just you and, and that, and that computer or piece of paper and pen, it's just you putting your thoughts down. So to co-write is a very difficult proposition. And I've been fortunate in the few experiences that I've, I've had with that. So basically what I'd like to do is a, it's just about, is this kismet? Do we, do we mesh, um, just as people, do we want to be around each other? If things get tough, will we be able to get through that? Then it's talking about the project. If someone's bringing me a project or I'm bringing someone else a project and it's like, hey, I think we would really be great as a co-writer thing here. You really have to talk about what the intention that you want with that project is. Intention is like, I think so key, right? Because if like you and I collaborate, like let's just use you and me. Sure. If you brought me a project and uh, and you and you were just like, I love your writing, I love your movies, I want you to co-write this with me. And I was like, great. And you brought me this idea and my intention with it was like, whoa, completely different you're not going to be happy and you're going to be disappointed through the whole process and it's going to be sucky for both of us. So I think like starting that co-writing process with a collaborator, it's so important to be so key with the intention of the, of, of whatever that is, whether it's a novel or a comic book or whatever, you both know what the goal of this thing is, whether that both in terms of like the business aspect of it, of like where it's going to be placed and also just the story and the themes and things like that, that you want to tackle. Then, uh, as I said before, we create like a Bible document. And, uh, and, and like, so if you were bringing me a project before I would start anything, before I would start giving you ideas and notes, I would say, hey, you take a week, however long you want, and you go make a document and you vomit everything you can there. That you can, whatever, however that might be. Like it wind up, might, it might be prose, it might be poetry, it might be just images that you pull from Google or whatever. But you basically you create something that then I can see exactly where you're coming from so that when we're in the process, we always have something to go back to. Um, so once that's there, then I can kind of come in and then we can start talking and be like, Hey, this is a really cool thing. Have you thought about it like this? Or have you thought about that? And then I think the collaboration can come on an even playing field. Right. And then it's like, do we have the understanding that you're asking me to help you and you're respecting my point of view on what this is and what my storytelling acumen is like, I may think, you know, it, I have all of your stuff that I know what you want to do. And I'm not going to try and deviate from that. Like, I'm like, oh, clearly, you know, this is what the story wants. But would you be amenable to maybe telling the story slightly differently? It still it does all this, but this might be a stronger or it might be weaker. But would you want to explore that? And then it's a lot of that kind of just like, hey, open dialogue. Let's work back and forth. We have that document to go back to. And then once we have like that kind of like idea, we write an outline together. We kind of create an outline together um, because otherwise neither of us knows what's what's going to happen. Right. It's kind no of like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 because like the, the actual writing of it is actually the simple part. So whether you're writing it or I'm writing it or writing it together, that's just like who wants to do the work. Right. But the outline will really have us both know, like, where is the story going at any given point in time? And then we can go into the scenes and fix it. So it's really just like that, 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 that sort of Bible document the collaboration that happens as a result of that, and then the outline. To me, those are the most important things as co-writers because once you have that, 
then you can write the script and you're both okay with it. Then it's just like, hey, would this person really say this? And you can have fights about like the line that Susie says at right, the diner, course, right? Yeah, but yeah, um, right. structurally, you're, you're coming from the same page. And again, again, that's me coming from a structural point of view. But I think that is really the only way I've been able to make it work is like once you can agree on the structure and the themes, then you can move forward with the fun stuff. Um, but yeah. So that well, it makes uh, yeah, total sense. It's like as if we were going to go build a house together and we just said, yeah. all right, we're going to go build it over here, but we had no game plan and we're all going to, st- we're both going to start from two different ends and meet in the middle. Yeah. That'd be yeah. a very strange house that probably doesn't match up. You need that foundation. <laughs> right. You need all that yeah. stuff in place. You yeah. Yeah. Plan. If you're building the foundation, then I build yeah. the roof. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. We're like, wait sense. a minute. It's not even the same shape. What are we doing over here? So, right. No, and it's cool. very much like it's got to go from the ground up. And right. I think exactly. that collaboration, exactly. like, and, and you know what, you may have be in a situation where you've already written a first draft and you want a co-writer on it. Cause you're like, I am, I think I'm, I've reached the, the peak of what I can do right. here. Right. Then again, as a writer who's going to a co-writer, you have that, that's your Bible document, that first draft. And then it's being very clear of the things that are important to you with that co-writer and, and being very, I mean, being very clear about what that relationship's going to be and what you want them to bring to the table. And then again, it's like that outline and talking about that stuff. You know, it's, it's the same process. It's just knowing that you have to be, as a writer who's bringing someone else a project, being open. To, to things being done in a new perspective. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. So, all right, throughout your filmmaking career, what, from the beginning to now, would mm-hmm. you kind of go back and adjust or tell yourself or, or polish to get yourself to where you are now faster? So if you mm. could go back in time, tell yourself, you know, do that, focus on this or change this one thing about yourself, what would that be? <laughs> How deep do you want to get? Uh, <laughs> well, you already said serial killer, so just you know, go from there. That's true. That's true. I would <laughs> kill more serial. Um, it's not necessarily about the writing, because I think this is what I would tell myself. And I've said this to other people too, but it's two things. There is no such thing as perfection, and you will never perfect anything. It's an art form. There is no such thing as perfect. If you were able to perfect it, you would have no need to do it anymore. Right. Right. Good point. Like, yeah. so, so just understand, I would tell myself in my writing and in my filmmaking, don't sure strive for it, but just know that you'll never get it. And that's good. That's a good thing. And then the other thing I would say is goes along with the perfection thing is just put your shit out there. You know, it, it does nobody any good for you to keep it to your chest and to keep it in your pockets and just be like, I'm doing this thing. You got to put it out there and you got to let people know you're doing something. It's like that manifestation aspect of it, you know? Interesting. Um, I've written so many scripts no one's read. And guess what those scripts have done for me? Nothing. Exactly, right. This script I put out there very publicly and now I'm making it. So, you know, it's like like this, the filmmaking thing is like, you got to keep doing, it's like that, again, the chicken and egg thing. It's tough, right? You got to keep doing the thing, even if you're not getting the reception, yeah, right. but you got to keep doing the thing. So people know, like people will notice you, follow you, or like, you know, once you get the big shot, you're ready to do it. But it's also the idea of people will recognize you for what you're doing. So that's what I would tell myself. Cause there was a long time there where I was not putting my work out there and I was scared and I was like, Oh, it's not ready, you know, whatever. And then I think something switched and like a switch flipped with, for me, like, like maybe like eight years ago, where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put everything out there, even if it sucks. 
and let's just see who responds to it. And then people started responding to it, even the wow. stuff that I thought was bad. Amazing. Because it wasn't actually that bad. It just, there was always something there, right? There's just, there's, just, there's always something there because I, because I put my time and my care into it. So that's what I would tell myself as like a younger, a younger lad is don't be perfect and just put it out there and just let it see what happens, you know? Well, you know, if, you're, I, if, yeah, if you're making shorts, put on YouTube, just yeah. put on YouTube, put on Instagram, like just throw it out there. I think there's a, a ton of wisdom in there because you're, you're making such an astute point about how often we edit before we even give ourselves a chance to succeed. Right. Yeah. And, and that's true in, in any space, take your pick entrepreneurship. When you're a college student, you mm-hmm. know, when you're in a creative space, it doesn't matter. It, it happens all the time. You say yeah. to yourself, oh, I'm not good enough to go do whatever. Or, and and I think that there's, there's subtextually though, an inherent genuineness and honesty also that you're having with yourself where it's not this, uh, fake it till you make it. I think people misunderstand what fake it till you make it means. Yeah. It doesn't mean be fake. It means kind of be the student until you're the master. And then when you're the master, what you end up coming to realize is that the true master is a lifelong student. Right. Exactly. Someone that's walking around looking for more opportunities to learn and grow. Right. You, you nailed it. Like, you know, you know, I think of anyone you look up to in like whatever field it may be, those people are figuring it out. No one knows what they're doing because every situation is fundamentally different. Everyone's challenges are fundamentally different. No one is like, did it. And is like, great come climb the mountain and I will give you all the wisdom <laughs> right, you need, yeah. right? Because also they can only give you their experience, which is directly related to their experience and your experience is different. So, you know, yeah, you're totally, I love the way you said that, 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 you know, you, the student becomes the master and you really become a master when you realize you're still a student. Exactly. Right. And you'll always be right. a student. Right. Yeah. You just yeah. may be helping other people off the mountain now too. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Nardeep, thanks so much, man. Going to keep a solid eye on this Land of Gold project. Love it. Can't wait to see it. Climb the charts. Be super successful. I'm, we're all going to manifest for you. This is going to be an amazing, amazing project. Life-changing for you. I feel it. Uh, thanks so much it. for being on the show. Really, really Thank- cool of you. Where can people uh, catch your stuff? We'll post a link, obviously, to your website. Yeah. But if they want to reach out, where else can they follow you? Yeah, so you guys can follow me on Instagram at Nardeep Thoughts. You can follow the film at Land of Gold Film on Instagram. Um, and landofgoldfilm.com is where you can see some update stuff. Uh, for those of you who may be more interested in the story and maybe want to help contribute to it. Uh, I'm going to put a little pitch here for our seed in spark, which is a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, you know, we did win a million dollars, uh, but we also have to worry about COVID. And as all, all, you know, Delta is raging right now. So we're trying to raise a little bit of extra money to cover our COVID costs because it's expensive. And, uh, we have a minor on set who cannot be vaccinated. So we, you know, we want to guarantee her safety and the safety of our cast and our crew. Um, so if you guys check out, uh, landofgoldfilm.com or our Instagram, landofgoldfilm or me, Nardeep Thoughts, uh, the links are in the bios and, and the links there are to their seed and spark. If you can donate, we would really appreciate that. Um, and if you can't just follow the campaign, that's a huge help for us. And, and, and if you feel compelled to share it with your, your friends and your family and your social media, because, uh, we would really, really, um, appreciate the help there. So yeah, the seed and spark would be, would be the, the place. And, and also there's a bunch of cool perks there. Like, you know, you, you'll get some like exclusive content as we make the movie. Um, 
and uh and and like there's a lot of cool stuff there so just check out that seed and spark and um i'm sure we'll get you the link for that too if you if you can Absolutely. post that and then, yeah. yeah and uh yeah and and i'm excited to share the film with all of you and be on this journey right like i this movie again will be premiering at the tribeca film festival next year and will be on hbo max next year so amazing uh yeah, with this time next, well, maybe not this time next year. By the end of next year, it will be online for everyone to see. So Amazing. Can't wait to see it, man. Thanks so much Thank again, you. Nardeep. Good talking to you.